The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I've seen horrors. Horrors that you've seen. But you have no right to call me a murderer. You have a right to kill me. You have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me. It's impossible through words to describe what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means. Horror. Horror has a face and you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. And that, as many of you out there will know, is Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now doing his own riff on Joseph Conrad's uh, statement from Heart of Darkness, the horror, the horror. Um, Marlon Brando's version of Mr. Kurtz is is an American general, and he is describing what horror was like in the Vietnam War, or just the horror of war in general, if you listen to the whole clip of that speech about horror. And I thought to do, for a while, I thought I would do a fun Halloween episode. But because of recent things I've seen on Netflix, I thought it might be better to talk about what real horror is. Um, Not the entertainment horror, but actual horror. And I'm reminded that uh, in a diary entry from when I wasn't even 10 years old, it it would have been... um, a few months after I turned nine, actually. On January 24th, 1989, there is uh, a diary entry of mine where it says, uh, you know, I did this at school, I did that at school. Uh, Probably says something about how it was cold, it was snowing. And then at the very end, as plain as day, as matter of fact as talking about macaroni and cheese, I just put at the end, Uh, Ted Bundy was electrocuted in the electric chair tonight.
serial killers and stories about them have been with me for that long. I've mentioned that um, my earliest memories, the earliest memory that I have is either uh, the memory of myself running out of my room screaming because I thought there were vampires outside of my room, um, and the earliest dreams that I can remember having are pretty horrific, uh, of uh, coming upon uh, the burial of my grandfather, who died when I was seven, and coming upon his where his body was buried in the backyard. And another time, uh, the dream of going up into the attic. In the attic, you could only get to the attic in my house through a door that was only in my room. I had the only access to the attic in the house. And I had a dream of going up into the attic and pulling the floorboards out and coming upon the, uh, the glass coffins, again, of vampires. Those were big with me. But also just the stories of serial killers, of people who do these things to other people. And, and alongside that, obviously, are horror movies. But it struck me from a very early age that the things that actually scared me in horror movies were not the parts that had all the blood um, or the gore. In The Exorcist, for instance, and William Friedkin's The Exorcist from the early 70s, the parts that actually scared me were when the young girl, Regan, goes to the hospital to get an arteriogram, and, he, and she is under the control of these doctors and is surrounded by these spinning machines, and you see her, the blood spurting out of her neck at one point when the doctor is... Um, I can't remember exactly what that process is, but he's inserting something into her neck. And uh, the other thing that terrified me about that movie was when the priest, Damien Karras, not when he's performing the exorcism, but when he goes to an obviously run-down and neglected hospital and encounters, he's going there to find his mother, his aged mother, and he encounters other old people who just want to have visitors who just want to have friends and these people see that he's a priest and so they swarm him even more they want some attention and that struck me as being immensely sad and frightening in a very real way and the other thing was of course Max von Sydow in the beginning of the movie uh, an archaeologist in Iraq who unearths a statue of the Mesopotamian uh, demon Pazuzu or Pazuzu and um, even though I know nowadays that the uh, discovery of a statue as intact as the one that is found in the movie probably has never occurred and will never occur, it is still an immensely evocative thing when you see Max von Sydow on a height, almost, and he is facing uh, across a waste, and there's wind howling everywhere, uh, this, this statue. In that sense, it was an image. Um, it is uh, something out of myth. It is a primal terror that immediately sunk into me and affected me very deeply. And as that's happening, there are two dogs that are uh, fighting in the dust of this yard in Iraq, and the snarling and the biting of these dogs. Um, 
that is something that scared me much more than the spinning head and the pea soup. And even as a young Catholic, it scared me even more than uh, a young girl uh, stabbing herself um, in the vagina with a crucifix screaming, let Jesus fuck me. That, that sounded kind of uh, ridiculous to me. Uh, even as a child, um, it, it didn't shock me. Um, and the other things that scared me from movies, what were they? It was Mommy Dearest. It was the actress uh, uh, beating her children or screaming, no wire hangers, no more wire hangers. The idea of uh, an adult, a mother, um, losing her temper to such a degree that she abuses her children in a very unfiltered and very realistic way. That's the thing that scared me. Um, in the Halloween movie, John Carpenter's original movie, uh, Halloween from 1978, it wasn't uh, Michael Myers wandering around with a butcher knife uh, and actually killing people that scared me. It was Michael Myers appearing briefly in front of uh, uh, a stand of bushes on a sidewalk, and only one of the girls sees this as they're walking down the sidewalk. The three high school friends are walking down the street on a sidewalk that looked very familiar to me. It looked like a suburban sidewalk. And the thing that scared me was seeing Michael Myers on that familiar sidewalk. Or when uh, the protagonist of the movie, uh, Laurie Strode, looks out of her bedroom window and sees Michael Myers standing in her backyard among the drying sheets, and then he's not there when she looks again. Or just uh, she's sitting in a classroom, in a class that looks like any grade or high school that you can imagine, and she sees him standing by a car. Those are the things that scared me, not the violence and the gore. And I suppose maybe maybe even that says something, that I was brought up on horror movies. I was brought up on seeing Johnny Depp in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie being sucked into his bed and all of the blood in his body being uh, blasted out of the, uh, the waterbed that he was on and uh, covering the ceiling. Or I was brought up on... Um, uh, sneaking glimpses of uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and seeing the hallways filled with blood coming out of the uh, coming out of the elevator shaft. Maybe it says something that those are the things that didn't frighten me. A butcher's knife being planted into a body in Halloween did not frighten me anymore. Maybe that says something as well. But I think it also says something about the things that even if I became desensitized to movie blood and movie murder and movie violence, I think it still says something about the things that I did not become desensitized to, which are the images of the old forgotten people in The Exorcist, or the child going to the hospital and being under the care of doctors and being terrorized by these machines. Um, I'm sure at least that part reminded me of uh, being in the hospital as a young child between the ages of four and 12 and going through many, many surgeries on my ears 
I'm sure it reminded me of those things. Those were the things that scared me. And that was real horror. That is real terror for me. Not the gore, not the uh, not the chase, not Michael Myers uh, um, walking but not running after you. And the other thing that was truly horrifying for me, at least, well, it still is actually, was when uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was caught. And then um, I've spoken with a few people who were born in the late 70s or the early 80s. And we all seem to remember what it was like. This is our JFK moment. This is our uh, 9-11 moment. We all remember where we were when suddenly on the evening news, the, the 5, 6 o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news, where these very sober, very perfectly put together, um, our version of BBC Annunciation of English, I remember a, a newscaster in Cleveland with his name Tim Taylor, with his perfectly coiffed hair. You know, um, he was the person who uh, whose emotion never broke, and uh, he could be describing just about anything. Same tone of voice, straight level, and suddenly these people were describing Jeffrey Dahmer, the discovery of bodies in a. Uh, in a uh, an apartment complex, the Oxford Apartments in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And as a fan of baseball, I knew Milwaukee from the Milwaukee Brewers, or earlier than that, uh, the Milwaukee Braves. I knew that Hank Aaron had played for the Milwaukee Braves, but now um, it is uh, a serial killer. It is uh, the, the site of... Uh, people in hazmat suits. That may have been the first time I knew what a hazmat suit was, using a dolly to uh, bring down these these tubs that we were told were filled with the remains of human beings, the, um, the slowly or the accelerated uh, rotting of bodies of these human beings. Um, that is something that I will never forget. But even worse than that, and I will put a link to it in the post description. And actually, I will I will just insert it right here because it is uh, truly horrifying. Um, when he finally went on trial, um, and uh, the families of his victims got to uh, speak to him, the the victim impact statements, I believe, is what that's called. And a woman named Rita Isbell, who is the sister of one of Dahmer's victims, a man named Errol Lindsay, um, is out of control, screaming and swearing at Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, Jeffrey, look at me, uh, calling him Satan and all of these things. And uh, uh, it was something, and it still is something, to to see a clip of that, to just hear it. And actually, let me just play that uh, right now. It's not very long. My name is Rita Isbell, and I'm the oldest sister of Errol Lindsay. Jer whatever your name is, Satan. I'm mad. This is how you act when you are out of control. I don't want to ever see my mother have to go through this again. Never, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, I hate you, mother. Out of control. Don't me, Jeffrey. I kill you. Don't look at me, 
And so again, imagine that on your six o'clock news before the internet, uh, before being able to just find that on YouTube, uh, over dinner and you hear that, that's the kind of thing that uh, as a child or even an adult, I suppose, in the early 90s, you would not have you would not have had a chance to hear outside of the news. And it even surprised me when I saw it and when I heard it, that they played it uh, on the news because it is so raw, it is so real, it is uh, actual, actual horror. And it's just something that still uh, terrifies me and um, something I sort of force myself to listen to every now and again, just to remember what that kind of real pain and loss is like. And of course, the, the, uh, the full version of this with the images is uh, Jeffrey Dahmer just sitting there staring off and um, apparently having no reaction at all. I was reminded of this and sort of brought to do this rather than a more lighthearted Halloween episode because of the Jeffrey Dahmer um, uh, docudrama, I guess you would call it, that is on Netflix right now. It's 10 episodes. And the real-life Rita Isbell um, complained that she was re-traumatized not only watching the show, but watching an actress portraying that moment of her screaming at Jeffrey Dahmer. And it actually happened that my wife and I watched the first episode of, uh, of the new series about Jeffrey Dahmer. And if you have a chance, this is another thing. Um, the first episode is about Jeffrey Dahmer encountering a man named Tr Tracy Edwards. And unless you are really familiar with the with the case and with what happened to Tracy Edwards and you're watching this first episode and you spend an entire hour inside Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment with this man named Tracy Edwards um, and you don't know what's going to happen. If you don't know the story well enough, you don't know what's going to happen and you think, oh my God, and it is one of the most intense episodes of anything that I've ever seen. And I and when that first episode ended, my wife and I both looked at each other and we said, um, I really don't need 10 episodes of that. If that is what this is going to be, I don't want that because again, it is true horror. It's not, um, it's not suspenseful in some uh, dramatic way. I don't, even, I don't even mean a cheesy way. I don't even mean it's not a, 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 it's not suspenseful as if you're watching a TV show. It was the closest I can imagine to coming into contact with someone like that as portrayed on the screen. There is, it is unrelenting and it makes you uneasy. It makes you sick to your stomach. And maybe that is what we should expect from uh, a series like that, from a movie version of something like that. Maybe that is the best way to show respect for the people who were killed 
or the best way to show respect to the people who do these things, to try to understand them, is to put yourself in uh, an imaginative space of someone recreating this to such a degree that you don't want to watch any more actual true horror. Now, by the time you get to the end of the episode, you realize that Tracy Edwards was uh, a man who got away and who flagged the cops down and was the person who finally got the police into Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment and got him arrested. Um, but even so, uh, up until that point, I did not know that, and, and it was horrifying. And I wonder how much of that we need is that kind of intensity, that kind of intensity that you don't want to see any more of, is that better than merely doing a show or writing another book, or doing a movie about someone like Jeffrey Dahmer that you just watch, and two hours later it's done, and you go back to your life. Which is better? Which is worse? But thinking about this woman, Rita Isbell, who is lodged in my mind uh, from childhood to right now, screaming at Jeffrey Dahmer, um, and I believe uh, when people saw her reaction to the, to the film, that she was re-traumatized, they began to say things like, well, they should have asked her permission to portray her in a film. They should have um, paid her for portraying her in a film. And a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon to say, yes, that should happen, because that's what people do on social media. They just follow whatever the fad of the moment is. But there was an equal, uh, an equally faddish response that I actually do agree with, which is kind of sad and immensely brutal. And that is that the real horror of crimes like these is that the people, the victims, and their families, and the people who knew them, uh, through no fault of their own, and whether they like it or not, will constantly be re-traumatized over and over and over again. There is almost no way to avoid this. Whether you're talking about a very sober police manual about uh, investigating homicides, whether you're talking about a very sober and serious interview about a criminal or, uh, or book by a detective about... Uh, investigating murders, whether you're talking about that or some paperback that's filled with photos and the front cover of the book says uh, shocking photos inside, or it's something like what happened a few years ago with the TV show Aquarius, where David Duchovny played a detective in Los Angeles in the late 1960s, and where Charles Manson is uh, one of the characters in the show. And they spent two seasons working up to the Tate LaBianca murders, and it just so happened that Sharon Tate's sister, you know, 50 years later, is sitting down and watching TV one night, and she sees a commercial, a promo, for the new episode of this show, um, advertising that we finally reached the part of the show where her sister is murdered, and to everyone else in the world, to most people in the world, um, 
That's just a commercial for a show. That's what commercials do. To her, it's a commercial saying, look here, we've recreated the murder of your sister. And there's not really anything that you can do about something like that. That strikes me as being another aspect of what real horror is that perhaps we don't think about very much. And another version of that is just the just the thumbnails that are shown on Netflix and Amazon and the other streaming services. When you're trying to find a show, just the thumbnail, just the graphic that is used uh, for the show itself in the long lists of shows that you can just scroll past and look at. But if you go to the true crime section, um, you will find uh, perpetrators' faces used on the cover um, of these, uh, used on these thumbnails. You'll see actual victims' faces used on these thumbnails. And one of them that, that really, that really affected me, I'm not really sure why, since it's no different than any of the others, was just of a, uh, a crime scene photo. It looked like it was from the 70s. Um, a grainy photo of a sort of a, a foggy dirt road where there are some police cars and uh, there are some uh, people standing around that you couldn't really see too well. But just down on the ground, there's just a shape. And you know that that is a dead body. That is a person who was murdered. And the image is just now being used as something that will get your attention to watch a show. And that is, uh, that is quite striking. And it strikes me that none of that is avoidable. The very sober version of it, of just someone talking uh, very seriously about how this is done, to having Netflix using a graphic like that, um, having a paperback about the Green River Killer, for instance, by Anne Rule that I have on my shelves, uh, not too far away from where I'm talking right now. A 700-page book that is really exhaustive, really informative about all the victims, all the, um, all the women, all the young women, all the older women, all the sad, horrible stories of many of these women's lives and how they ended up becoming prostitutes and how they ended up being murdered um, by a man named Gary Ridgway. It's an astonishing book. It's not just about a serial killer, but about his victims. It gives their names, it gives their stories. It's the kind of thing you want if you're into this kind of thing. But of course, the cover has to be uh, the long legs of an attractive woman getting out of a car. Of course, the book has to be called Green River Running Red. Um, it has to say uh, photos inside or whatever it is, shocking photos inside. Um, and because as human beings we are drawn to stories like these uh, for whatever reason, um, out of our own curiosity, out of our own sense of uh, being extremely morbid, out of our own sense of uh, just wanting to escape and read about something horrible that happened to somebody else, or reading about people doing things that deep down we have thought about wanting to do 
ourselves, whatever the reason, this kind of true horror is something that we can't get away from. And I was struck by this as well. Uh, last year, in the middle of September, in September 2021, because I knew that there were billions, millions of people all around the world, many of whom knew, were related to, or just knew as friends, uh, people who had died uh, on September 11th, or people who, who knew people who had died, loved ones, friends, family members, who died as a result of the wars that took place after 9-11. And now, all of a sudden, on TV, on streaming, on YouTube, all over the place is just 20th anniversary of 9-11 documentaries, stories, reminiscences, all of this. That's, I knew there were people out there who had to look at this, who didn't want to look at it anymore, who had lived through it already and wanted to forget it. And suddenly it's all become packaged again. And suddenly the, the, the two towers, uh, the two Trade Center towers, are once again being used in a graphic design way to, to be the 11 in 9-11. All of that stuff, all of that weird, shady, unavoidable shit that we have to do um, to make these things palatable or to make them entertainment or to just make a book cover or a DVD cover, or a, or a, a graphic on a web page. It struck me the how re-traumatized and how endlessly victimized the the victims of murderers are just in the indexes of books. That their names forever will just appear in the indexes of true crime books. Um, that someone, someone that who was a son or a daughter, someone who went to grade school and moved away and you never knew what happened to them or wh whatever their story is. They grew up, they got married, they had children, they divorced, they, they found a new job, they could never find a job, uh, they never succeeded, they did succeed, whatever their personal story was. At some point, they ran across the wrong person who murdered them, and and forever, that person's name will, that victim's name, the whole list of victims' names, will appear in the index to a book about murder, about violent crime, about rape, about uh, whatever it is that happens. And this struck me, again, in uh, reading a book called American Serial Killers, The Deadliest Years by Peter Vronsky. I won't use the victim's name, but this is just one passage from one book about true crime, and it's not exploitative at all. It's just fairly matter-of-fact, even though the writer does get uh, obviously enraged at these things that are going on. But just, just imagine that and in, in the paragraph here, they use the, the victim's actual name of what happened uh, after she was murdered 
in the early 70s. Just imagine that this is a paragraph about someone that you knew and that you loved and that these kinds of facts are just out there about them. Again, this is this is keeping uh, with the theme of true horror. I don't know of anything worse than this. It says um, uh, the murderer uh, took the young woman's body uh, back to his mother's house and while his mother was not looking he put her body in his bedroom closet and went to sleep. In the morning when his mother went to work he took the corpse to bed with him and had sex with it. Afterward he placed the cadaver in his mother's bathtub, drained it of blood, carved it into pieces, bagged them in plastic, and threw them off a cliff. He kept her head for several days, often having sex with it, and on and on and on. Um, and he buries the head in the front yard, uh, facing up toward his mother's bedroom window, because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. That seems to be that seems to be the horror of these things is that it's bad enough that you were murdered. It's bad enough that all of these things happened to you. It's even worse that you will never get away from it. That is uh, that is your obituary that this is what happened to you, that this is what happened to the the body that you lived with while you were alive. The body that was animated and that people loved, the uh, body that was uh, brought home when you were born and that your parents watched grow, and the body that appears in all of your school photos, the body that appears uh, in your high school photos, out with friends, all the memories that people have of you and of your body, and that is where you end up. That strikes me as being true horror. And it goes back to what I was mentioning in the episode about Stephen King's Pet Cemetery uh, a few weeks back. I mentioned that uh, around the same time that Stephen King was writing Pet Cemetery, he was also writing a nonfiction book where he includes the line that uh, he wants to scare his readers, and if he can't scare them, he will go for the ultimate gross-out, or something like that. And I said in that episode that even though I don't quite believe that he uh, seriously means that, I do think that on some level Stephen King is not, and, and many filmmakers of horror movies, they're not actually interested in real horror. What they're interested in is uh, something that's a little scary, but that is basically entertaining. They're in it for the story. They want to give you a few chills, a few frights, but that they don't want to actually go where the real darkness actually is. And I thought that that was a reason why Stephen King is still kind of squeamish about his book, Pet Cemetery, because that is an example of when he was showing, to my mind, actual horror. The suspense in the book is not like that of a normal suspense novel. 
Um, I told the story of when the father in the book goes to dig up his his dead little boy who was hit by a truck and you know that the reason he's doing it is to take it to the cemetery to the cemetery near his house so that the little boy can be raised from the dead and he doesn't have to deal with the fact that his child is dead but the whole process of that from the father going to the hotel then to the cemetery then hopping the fence and trying to avoid the, the headlights of cars and the actual digging up and sitting with his son's corpse and going trying to bring it back to the car and forgetting some of the stuff at the grave and having to fill the grave in finally getting to the car and thinking that he's lost his keys all of these details would be expected uh, things in a in a usual suspense story but uh, where you don't know what the outcome is actually going to be. And what Stephen King does in Pet Cemetery, and in that sequence, which I think runs for about 50 to 75 pages, is just to make it so unrelentingly awful um, to, use the, uh, to use the tactics of regular suspense stories, not to make you guess what's going to happen next, but to just keep delaying what you know exactly is going to happen next um, makes that truly horrifying. I've written elsewhere that uh, about uh, Stephen King's book, I think it's called A Good Marriage, or it may have just been a screenplay that he did. And that was apparently written uh, or inspired by the BTK killer, Dennis Rader, out of uh, Kansas and he was someone who began his career of, of killing people in the early 70s and he wasn't found he wasn't found out I think until the late 90s or the early 2000s when he began sending taunting letters to the to the police and the newspapers just to say that he hadn't gone away and he was caught uh, I believe by the the metadata that was on a, a floppy disk that traced back to the Lutheran church that Dennis Rader was a part of. Now that is not the stuff of a thriller, of a horror movie, but it struck me, and at the time that I was writing about this, I wondered why. Um, why, in Stephen King's version, is it about the wife? who finds out and about a sort of cat and mouse thing that happens uh, where she tries to, I, don't, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know what happens, but it's the usual thing. Um, why couldn't Stephen King make a novel or a screenplay about what actually happened? The reason is because what actually happened is true horror, actual horror. It's the thing that happens. Um, someone like Stephen King, someone like John Carpenter, um, someone even like Jonathan Demme or Thomas Harris with Silence of the Lambs, uh, turns true horror into something that is uh, palatable, more palatable, makes it easier to go down. And that struck me as well with the story of 
Ed Gein up in Wisconsin, where you have someone who was imbibing these men's adventure magazines in the 40s and who heard stories about violence against women and uh, the sort of uh, rape fantasies and, and, and bondage stuff that was happening in regular men's magazines. And this is something that Peter Vronsky goes into very well in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s that were just available on newsstands. Um, and he was aware in some of those magazines of stories of cannibalism and of people turning bodies into uh, uh, skinning bodies and turning them into suits and masks and things and uh, uh, lampshades and, and clothes and stuff like that. He was aware of these things from these magazines. And what you have is someone, uh, I believe all throughout the 40s, especially after his mother dies, who becomes a grave robber who uh, steals bodies and does these things with them. And all you have to do is go to Wikipedia and look up Ed Gein and just look at the inventory of the things that were found in his house. I don't need to read that here. Um, and it turned out only at the end did he actually start killing women to do this too. And it strikes me that what happens to a story like that when it reaches the hands of novelists and filmmakers? Well, the first reaction was is that it was turned, it was an inspiration for Robert Bloch and then for Alfred Hitchcock for Psycho, uh, a man living uh, by himself in the woods of Wisconsin after his mother has died and who is a grave robber and ends up doing these things with the bodies and with the skins of these bodies is turned into a suspense story about a hotel and the woman who's in peril and the woman has her own backstory because she has stolen this money and so for part of the movie until you until you've seen the movie for the first time you think that well maybe the perpetrator is someone who knew she had the money and all this stuff is wrapped up into it in the late 70s, you have Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which at least keeps the strangeness of it. It is out in the boonies somewhere. But even then, uh, the story of Ed Gein is, is still about someone and his entire family sort of living out a Flannery O'Connor story. And it has to be about uh, teenagers, it's the whole teenagers uh, having sex and getting murdered thing. It has to be about a group of people going on some kind of trip and getting caught out in the wilds, a sort of deliverance thing as well. And that's when they encounter the person that's, uh, that, was a, that was inspired by Ed Gein. Except it's not just about him, it's about his entire family. It's about Leatherface and, and all of that and their house is just filled with bodies and body parts. And then that's when you get to Thomas Harris and the Silence of the Lambs and Buffalo Bill and and all the, it's a it's a wonderful plot in the book and in Jonathan Demme's movie and with Anthony Hopkins and um, Jodie Foster of course. And you get the whole thing of uh, FBI profiling and the hunt for the killer and uh, 
getting the advice from the, the mastermind who is also a killer and the cat and mouse game of uh, the FBI going to the wrong house, but the young detective goes to the right house and the whole thing. Um, all of that is done to avoid the actual horror, the actual utterly bizarre thing that is so hard for people to imagine of what was actually going on with Ed Gein up in the woods of Wisconsin. And that's very striking, all the plot, all the wonderful plot. Um, I couldn't plot something as well as that book, but still it's worth looking at, uh, at what it is that we need to do to imbibe uh, actions like that, facts like that, um, killings and uh, grave robbings like that. The only way for us to truly take those things in is to turn them into stories like that. But it strikes me that that our desire for fame, I've talked about this many times in my episodes on jealousy and on stubbornness and all the rest of it, um, we are told to want fame so badly. We are told that fame is the best thing we can possibly have, attention from other people on us, non-stop. We are told that's the greatest goal in life. and. And we are told this so thoroughly, so constantly, from the day we're born uh, on through, and everything that we see, that I think part of this reaction is that we don't like it, that the ones who get the fame, the ones who get the notoriety, the ones who get the movies made out of them, the 10-hour movies made out of them, uh, 30 years after they were found out, the ones who were pathetic in high school and who get sympathetic treatments of them in high school, uh, the ones who get that are the ones who acted so terribly. The ones who acted in ways that we would never do and that we made sure that we would never do, um, those are the ones who get attention while we are stuck uh, with our day jobs watching these shows when we get home from work. I think that's also part of it to such an extent that we don't want to imagine that these people can be sympathetic in any way or that we can even learn anything from knowing their story in any way. I remember writing a, a, a horror story a few years ago um, about a, a, about a, uh, a German soldier in World War II Paris who saw and uh, perpetrated many terrible things in the East. And that was the title of the story, In the East. And when he comes to Paris, he is haunted by nightmares and by impotence and by the memories of the things that he saw and the things that he did. Um, and the story didn't work out, didn't work very well. But I remember one of the rejection letters for the story said, um, our reader also, the reader for this magazine, our reader also did not appreciate it that you were trying to humanize Nazis um, as if they weren't human and as if I didn't need to do anything to humanize them because they're already human. 
And it strikes me, not just for if you, that, that if you have the stomach to study something like what happened uh, during the Holocaust or any atrocity, um, or if you have the stomach to read about what serial killers or violent criminals do, and then to work your way backwards to imagining uh, how these things happen. Uh, it's the, the unavoidable thing is that they are human and that we, I don't know, we do a, we do a disservice to ourselves to pretend that we are virtuous by not naming the perpetrators of these crimes in the news or in newspapers or the idea that uh, when Columbine happened that we shouldn't say the names Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris because we're just giving them the fame that they wanted. Um, I would much rather give them the fame they wanted if that meant understanding them than playing along with their game and being as childish as they were, really. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how much more I have on this. Let me see. I will just, actually, I will just mention one other thing. And this maybe also has something to do with our, with the aversion that some people have to why we watch shows like this, why we spend, and I ended up watching the rest of the, the Dahmer series by myself, why we do that. Um, and one of the things that I was struck by was the episode that was about Jeffrey Dahmer's father, which is something that you usually would never see in a show of this kind or in a show about uh, mass murderers like this, which is when his father, Jeffrey Dahmer's father, Lionel, admits that as a young man and uh, as an adult, he felt the same urges that his sons did. He had the same, many of the same fantasies that his son did. Um, it just so happened that he was able to uh, find a way to not act on them. Although, as portrayed in the film and uh, in a memoir that he wrote, it seems that uh, he was not able to be uh, a great father or a great husband um, for that reason and for many other reasons, it seems. I'm not sure. But uh, a friend of mine from many years ago named Jim, who may be out there listening to this, uh, he gave me an immense piece of advice for writing that I've never forgotten. And it's probably the best piece of advice he ever gave me. So Jim, if you are listening, thank you for this. Um, he told me, reading a story of mine that was uh, sort of about atrocity and about uh, sexual and other violence, um, one thing he told me was that the, the perpetrators, the sort of... Uh, uh, wise mind, the Hannibal Lecter behind all of these things, the sort of Nietzsche figure behind all of this, um, he wasn't enjoying himself. He wasn't having a good time. And 
what my friend Jim told me was, is that the essence of things like this, the essence of things going as far back um, as Milton's um, character of Satan in Paradise Lost, is that uh, evil, the, the, the perpetrators of evil, uh, the actual acts of evil and violence and victimization and uh, murder and all of these things, um, it has to be shown honestly. And one way that it can be shown honestly is to show that to the people doing it, it is immensely attractive. It makes them happy. It enthralls them. It uh, fills them up with life in the way that nothing else does. And that is a very hard thing to to wrap your mind around. And as the parent of a child who will one day be imbibing many of these horror movies um, and who may choose someday to read about true crime and, uh, and all of its many facets, um, it is hard to know how to prepare someone, especially uh, a young woman or an adult woman uh, that, will my, that my daughter will end up being, how to prepare them for that reality, that the people who do these things enjoy doing it. It has to be attractive. It has to be fulfilling to them. Otherwise, they wouldn't take the risk to do it. And I'm reminded of... Uh, when I get the director's name right here, and then I will end for the night. Um, yes, uh, I'm reminded of the director Robert Eggers and his 2015 movie uh, called The Witch, which uh, is an amazing, an amazing uh, New England uh, bit of. Uh, bit of horror and folklore of, of witchcraft in early uh, 17th century America. Uh, the young daughter, whose entire family gets, gets murdered by the end of the movie, who's living out in the middle of nowhere, who, uh, who has left the sort of Puritan enclave to live out in the middle of nowhere to be apparently more pious than the rest of everybody else. Um, by the time her family is all dead and she leaves the cabin that they're living in and she comes upon the witches uh, gathering in the woods um, and she goes around the fire with them and she joins them and the way that she knows that she is joining them and has been accepted into their company is that she begins to rise up into the air with the rest of them. There is an incredible, uh, this is Anya Taylor-Joy, I think in one of her first uh, major movie roles, there is an incredible look of, of elation uh, and fulfillment and happiness and joy at uh, having achieved this horrible status of... Uh, of being a woman who lives in the woods and grinds up the corpses of children and babies and adults in a butter churn to uh, get their brooms going so they can fly at night. 
Um, that is another true horror detail from this film that I've never seen done anywhere else. Um, and that seemed to be central to the whole idea. And it is an uncomfortable horror. But I think, as Marlon Brando says, uh, it is... Uh, it is true horror. It is uh, Joseph Conrad's The Horror, The Horror That We Cannot Avoid. And I don't know. I suppose I will leave it there tonight. And for those of you who have stuck to the end of this, uh, I appreciate it. And thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always... Thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.